diving into Exodus. Well, we're in Exodus, swimming around. Uh, we're leaving Egypt now. I call moving out. Uh, I'm going to drop my pen here multiple times. Um, now, I don't know if anyone here has ever moved. Who's, who, who's moved before, right? And, and I put down, I moved a lot as a kid. Moves can be both exciting and fearful, right? The thoughts of a new place, fresh start, new people, right? Those are exciting things. Yet the loss of a known home, a loss of the comfortable relationships, the loss of security and stability, that weighs on you. Uh, Heather's cousin, uh, she's about 50 years old. She lives in Nashville. Her husband's a dentist. And uh, she just visited um, yesterday, I think it was, or two days ago. And we found out that her uh, proposed move to California is actually happening. Her husband sold the practice. They're moving to San Diego. And really for their final phase of his career and her career, not starting over, but transitioning a little bit. And so they were, um, you know, there's a sadness. She's lived in Tennessee all of her life. All of her family's in Tennessee, minus Heather and some in Virginia and a little bit around there. But everyone's East Coast and she's going to California. So there's that sense of sadness. But you can see the excitement. It's like she's showing us pictures of properties uh, where they might want to live outside of San Diego, buying this farm or looking at this property or what could they do. And the excitement surrounds what will take place. Uh, now, some people have to move out of an area because of necessity. Uh, and I'm picking on Heather's family, which, which I enjoy at times. But her, her dad's family, you don't have to dig long. To, he's from Louisiana. And when you hear us talk, I always say my father-in-law's from Louisiana. His family's from Louisiana. That's what they claim is Louisiana. Well, you don't have to go but two generations, and you're in Illinois. But they left Illinois in the middle of the night under suspicion of murder and ended up in Louisiana. So you can imagine their family stops digging at the move to Louisiana. I'm there, and like someone says, yeah, do you know that such and such great granddad had to leave Illinois under suspicion that he had killed somebody? He didn't do it, but under suspicion. And then you ask more questions, and all they'll talk about is their roots in Louisiana. I'm like, well, they don't run that deep, you know. <laughs> You're barely here, you know. But it's funny because in the middle of the night, they had to leave, and they're Louisiana natives. And so I said, moving has a lot of reasons, right? You can move because it's an exciting new venture. Uh, you can be excited about it. You can be fearful about it. You might move because you have to move. The person, uh, you're highly motivated to move. It's, it's not safe for you to stay there. Uh, it's going to change the dynamic of your family. And, and when you look at Israel moving, and I say all those little weird examples for this reason, Israel is feeling the full gamut of those emotions as they're getting ready to move. And I'm going to shift here it's a map that kind of covers a lot of what they end up doing. And I want you to think that they're here, Ramesses, and you'll hear that in Numbers. And you're going to hear names. Now, one of the things I want to be cautious about, we can estimate where some of these places are, but in all honesty, a lot of the names have changed. And so you're going to see some question marks on maps, depending on who writes the, or writes or draws the map. But this is the general movement that we're about to take because they're moving out. And, and Israel is feeling this range of emotions. Let me give you a couple of them. There's going to be excitement to be out of slavery, right? If you've been told what to do, enslaved, been beaten, been abused, been marginalized, then getting a chance to leave and get out is going to feel great. On the flip side, there's going to be fear in leaving the only life you know. You know agriculture here. 
You understand how to farm here. You understand how to survive in this environment. And so you're going to have some fear in there being a change and going somewhere else. All your kids have been raised and born here. And you're leaving it to go to the promised land, but you don't know what the promised land looks like. You, you don't know much about it at all because you've never been there. You're not moving. Uh, Heather's cousin, they're flying. They're in California today looking for houses to rent. They had the chance to go there ahead of time. You're leaving with no idea where you're going and, and you're moving. Just think of the emotions that are there. I want to add another emotion. If you remember... God orchestrated it so Pharaoh and the Egyptians kicked the Israelites out. It wasn't a permission slip like, okay, you have a skip day. Go ahead. You can take it. It's you're expelled from school. You're kicked out now. And so there's urgency behind their exit. So with the excitement of being liberated, and let's be honest, we've seen their fear. They're willing to revert back in a minute, and you're going to hear them talk about it all in the desert. There is a definite tension there. Then on top of that, there's an urgency because the Egyptians want them out. Let me read Exodus 12, 33. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we be all dead men. The Egyptians were, get out before we all die. Now, I want you to wrap up, and it's hard for us to... to you're supposed to get in the emotions of the Israelite people, and that's hard to do. Because most of you, you know, you feel like the old boss man drives you hard because you have to get up and be at work at 7 and work to whatever time and have your two, four, six weeks of vacation. And, you know, you can demand more pay. You can quit your job. You can work somewhere else. You can... We don't understand the mentality of having every component of your life being told to you to being stuck here, having walked through nine months of plagues and the, and, and don't forget the oppression that Pharaoh put on those people at the end, no straw, beating people, no, no temperance, no movement, no budge. They've walked through a difficult situation. Don't forget that he was murdering their babies. And we hear the story of Moses, right? What does our brain go to? We think every baby made it. How many babies did they drown? There's no way of knowing. But I guarantee you they drowned a whole bunch of them. That they killed more. We see the success, but we have no, we have no way of knowing that this would have not seen loss and agony. And we talk about losing a child and, and the pain that that brings, and I wouldn't necessarily want to drudge that up in somebody at all, but we know that pain. We've seen that pain. It's horrible. Nothing like that loss. These are people, and I want you to realize, the swirling and spiraling circumstances of their life would be hard to pinpoint. I say that to lead into point number one, which is we're diving into God's direction, which is chapter 13. I say it also because I have a tendency to look at the nation of Israel and to act like I'd be different or to pretend that I'd be better or that I'd be tougher, or that I'd be more motivated, that I'd have more courage. And I feel like that's not fair to them. It's not to excuse their behavior. It's to help us get to where they are, to recognize that if you grew up that way, if you face this kind of loss and this kind of pressure and these kind of changes, you would struggle with some of your emotions too. And here's the reality. You find a propensity to quit that's going to come out in them. 
as we walk in the wilderness, as we're at Mount Sinai, we're going to see weakness spiritually, and, and we can start, um, we can start looking. And say, well, I wouldn't do that. One, we know more of God than they knew of God, and two, I would hate to give you illustrations of absolute quitting that takes place in the church. Even people that find their idols that pull them away from their worship, and they'll pretend like they're better than the Israelites, and they're not even remotely as good at worship as them. Because it's shocking to me. So just in, in, in Christianity today, the propensity to quit is higher than theirs, if not at least equal, right? So just get that in our mind. But with that propensity to quit, it's no wonder that God provides very specific directions. And so we begin in 13... And it depends on what Bible you have. Mine has remember the Passover, which really is Moses talking about the firstborn and then talking about the feast of unleavened bread that he wants him to celebrate. And I put these, these directions begin with things to keep in mind. And I find that fascinating. You're leaving on the biggest journey of your life. It couldn't be bigger for the nation of Israel. You entered Egypt as 70, you're leaving in the millions this is the big exodus. This is what we've been building up to. We've seen the plagues. We've seen God work. We've seen God make Egypt bow down. The nation, the world power is bowing down to God as they should. And we're leaving. And the first thing God says to do is to keep some things in mind. Verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read a few of these verses. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the wound among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. And, and understand this, God says as they're leaving, Hey, the firstborn belong to me. Now why is that? What has just happened? What plague just unfolded? Yeah. And Egypt lost their what? That's gone. And God redeemed very specifically their firstborn. And now God is saying, I want your firstborn. And we're going to read as we go through Exodus and into Numbers. You see how the tribe of Levi becomes that, that giving of, um, they're set aside for God in that sense. But they're always giving for the firstborn. There's always a uniqueness to it. But understand this, God is reminding them of what? Of themselves or of him? And I want you to see that as we walk through this, they're reminded of the greatness and glory of God. What is due God? What, what should be given to God? And so there's a reminder of the firstborn. That carries on into 11 to 16, and it talks through that a little bit more. On top of that, from verses 3 through 10, and Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. This is the feast of unleavened bread. This day came ye out in the month Abib. And you might say to me, Kenny, I thought it was month Nisan. And that Abib is an earlier name for the month Nisan. Same month, in other words. Uh, the only way you know that is if you look at a chart from someone smarter than us, who wrote it out. That's how I did it. I looked at a chart and said, Abib, I thought it was Nisan. And I just did a little research. And I'm like, ah, oh, old name, new name, mixed up there. And so it's finding that if you ever have a chart of Bible months, if you can copy it and tuck it in your Bible, especially when you read through the Old Testament, you'll have an idea of where in the world you are. 
Uh, I love it. We're, we're, in, we're in that month, right? Abib, March, April. We're, we're here. The green month. Yeah. The month of the green. And that happens in, in, the, in uh, um, you'll see that in the Gospels, where everything gets green and they talk about that. You're right at that time. So we're March, April. We're, we're, we're in the Exodus, guys. We're, we're leaving Egypt, so to speak. I don't want you to move out of Culpeper. It's not Egypt. This is the promised land. So I tell people that. You're coming here. Bring people here. Uh, we're not the Canaanites, though. I'm just trying to balance this out. The analogy breaks down. I just want to stop there. Um, but give me your firstborn and remember, remember what, what we've done. We have the Passover, this, this whole feast. You have the Passover, and then you celebrate seven days. And there's very specific things about what you need to remember. I find it fascinating that the first directions that God gives to a freed people who are moving out that need to know where in the world they're going he says, I want you to think spiritually into the future. Where are you going spiritually? You're my people. You're going to give me the firstborn. You're my people. You're going to remember my deliverance. You're going to remember my redemption. Remember, we're dealing with redemption from death. What do they paint on the doorpost? Blood. And they specified the blood. Who is the Passover lamb? The ultimate fulfillment of that? Jesus Christ. And he fulfills that for them. And so what is most important, and just keep this in mind, it doesn't negate the need to get out of Egypt. But first, we're reminded of what we need to do spiritually. And I think in our day and age, we, we struggle with that priority. I mentioned it with Job, right? Job is a billionaire with tons of responsibility. It doesn't get in the way of worship. It doesn't get in the way of the priority of God. That's not a new thing that God does. You walk through. What do you see in the biggest move of everyone's life? Millions of people leaving, going to this land here, and they go a very different route than you would expect, and Scripture tells why. Keep God's priority. Remember what He's done in redeeming you, and remember the sacrifice or what he gave you, and that's the firstborn. Now, that doesn't mean that the physical component is not important. That's 17 through 22. Let's look at that in chapter 13. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God led them not through the lay of the land of the Philistines, although that was near or was shorter or was closer. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. In other words, God is fully aware of their propensity to what? Quit. They have a propensity to quit. They hit a hardship. I wish I was in Egypt. They hit a hardship. I wish I was eating vegetables in Egypt. Hit a hardship. I had meat in Egypt. They hit a hardship. I wish I was in Egypt. Hit a hardship. You're just trying to bury us in the desert. Every time, we're going to see that next week, we're going to watch them. We're going to see a little bit of testing because we're going to get down tomorrow right about here. And we'll come back tomorrow next week and kind of get us back to Mount Sinai. And there's a host of little tests along the way. Uh, the people test Moses throughout that Moses actually sins uh, towards the end and God doesn't let him enter the promised land just to show you the height and responsibility for him. But they're going to see a lot of testing here. Uh, they constantly are doing that. But the idea is God knows they're going to struggle. So God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Go all the way back to Genesis, and you have Joseph saying, don't bury me here. And they don't. They take him out. 
And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And this is 21 <coughs> through 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And I want you to give a little background here. God, being omniscient, moves the people, one, with a path of least resistance. If you're going here and you're here, naturally you would just dip down and you would go straight through here. Now this area here, this area was filled with Egyptian fortresses. Now they've been given permission to leave, so that's not the concern. Thus scripture references the Philistines, that if they would go straight up here, they would bump right into the Philistines, war would unfold, and we'd have a problem. So instead you see them going down to the Red Sea area. Honestly, it seems like you can pick up any commentary and they're going to divide this up different ways. Cross here, cross here, cross here, cross up by some lakes, cross up by lakes that were here but are gone now. There's a thousand different options that come out. This is what seems to be the most natural path that I've researched. Again, no one can know exacts. The fact of the matter is, is God is not bringing them straight out. He's bringing them down into a wilderness area. And the reality is this. He's putting their back against a body of water that they can't cross. That is critical. He's moving them to a place where they're going to be most fragile or pinned or stuck. And that might sound like God is showing off, but actually God is setting up his deliverance in a way that I'll explain when we get to it is significant because it's a point in time. He's going to take care of the Egyptian army and it's over with. Um, notice that he, he leads him by cloud by day and fire by night. He's not asking Moses to say, follow me and walk. They have to follow the cloud and have to follow the fire. They know that's God. Moses is not doing a magic trick with the smoke going up all the way down there. They know that. They're watching. And so they see clear guidance. And I put here, guidance was provided both with reminders, spiritual components, and physical leading, which are life components. But notice that they're not choosing their exit path. They're going where God leads them. It doesn't ever make sense to put your back to a body of water. If you're trying to get here, this doesn't make sense. This makes sense. This makes sense. This doesn't. Nobody's going to a body of water and sitting there unless there's a cloud or a pillar taking care of this. I want you to see that God is bringing them to a place um, God knew and protected them from themselves. And though we do not have a cloud by day and fire by night, I put this, and I think this is important, we do have clear direction from the Lord. One of the things that blows me away the most, and I'll be talking with somebody or counseling, and I'm blown away by how confusing we can make God's clear direction. And it's always easiest to do that in your own life, isn't it? It's like I can look at someone else's life and I'm like, come on. It's like God has like lit a fire in front of you. Just follow him. And I look at my life and it's all misty and cloudy. And that speaks to my struggle, not God's direction. Here's the reality. God provides clear direction for your life. You need to actually seek it, though. Um, it's just interesting how things unfold. And I watch people make decisions and I'm like, but just... If you would just stop for a second and go to God's word and apply. Uh, I'm not kidding. I got an email 
uh, and, and was reading the email, and I'm like, that was one of the points in my sermon. And there's nothing more frustrating than to say, I think I said it clearly. I'm pretty sure it was clear. And watch someone make the opposite decision and be like, I really thought I made that, like, I thought that was clear from Scripture. I, I felt like that was right there. And someone justifies a decision, and you're like, I, I don't know what else I can say. That's because we tend to not look for God's leading and direction. We find a reason to do what we want. That's not on God. And that's the point I'm trying to make with guidance. Listen, seek God's guidance. It's there and it's clear. So when you're struggling, the step back is to say, I'm struggling. What do we typically say? God's not clear. No, you're not seeing clearly. God is always clear. We don't see clearly. And when we stop and do it that way, it makes us take a step back. Uh, I've seen this in my own life, so I'm going to pick on myself since I picked on Heather's family. And sometimes my emotions will get the best of me. And I'll be worked up about something. And I'm going. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, whatever. You ever seen that one cartoon movie where that little, uh, all the emotions in the person's brain are different colors? Yeah, mine's red. So just so you understand where it goes. And I will justify my behavior because I will link it to what I feel at that moment. And I, I've told Heather, I said, I don't know if God did this on purpose, but I'm a mile from the church. And so anytime I'm upset, I have to think for a mile. And usually by the time I'm coming up the hill to my house, I'm realizing I'm wrong. And what's fascinating is what I could not see before, I then see clearly, and it's obvious to me, how God wants me uh, to respond. I was uh, picking up, actually Kyle Jenkins came and helped me pick up my lawnmower from K&M. Um, and and I like things to be done. If you tell me two weeks, and I give you three or four, but if you tell me two weeks and it's been two months and I'm chasing you down to get my tractor, I'm frustrated. It's raining. I'm being hauled around. Now, it's nice to get hauled around by a 17-year-old because he has the trailer. He's going to drive the tractor. He's going to sit in the wet seat because he's trying to help an old guy out. And I'm like, this is great. Falling paid off on this one, you know. Um, but I'm in at the shop, and uh, I, I say Kenneth Van Hoven. That's my full name. And um, that threw him for a curveball because they had me under Kenny, and so that was over, overwhelming to him. And so I start getting sarcastic. I'm sure it's a shock <laughs> uh, to everyone here. Here's what's fascinating to me, and I know testimony, and you know what I see? I see a worker there that lives right there, and he's been to church, and he, he knows me. We nod. He talks to me. He gave me advice on how to get a loaner tractor from them because they never fixed mine. He's been very helpful. Uh, and I see him, and I'm reminded again, huh, don't be snarky, Kenny. So I smile, I talk, I apologize to the guy working that he has to go out in the rain, joke, laugh, everything goes. Because my, my, my interaction with them was obvious what I needed to do. It was clear. But I cloud it by my emotions, but the direction is clear. I, I know what I'm supposed to do. And it doesn't mean you're a doormat. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean... Look, I, you know, I emailed the guy and said, hey, man, it's time for this to be done. And that's, that's all fine and dandy. But in, in, in person there, and you feel the snarky or the sarcasm, you know, just going there. And I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to wait, I might as well have a little fun with these people. But I didn't, right? I just backed off. Because you see someone, you say, hey, that's someone that God has given us opportunity with. And here I am, maybe ruining it with my sarcasm. And so you, you tailor back. Because what God wants me to do is clear. I cloud it. 
I say that because that's what we all do oftentimes. We cloud what is clear. Don't blame God when the way's not clear. Recognize that it's clear and step back. And that's one of the beauty thing, beautiful things about being in a church. Step back and, and get with brothers and sisters in Christ and pray through it and talk through it and work through it. It doesn't make you into some kind of villain. It just means you stop and recognize God's clear and he's given you brothers and sisters in Christ to exhort you and to encourage you to grow and to see what he wants. Um, now, this direction carries them where? Right to the backside of a body of water. And there they sit. Um, and guess what? Pharaoh's army is now fast approaching. And it looks like a deadly trap and places them in great need of, and this is chapter 14, salvation. They're in another situation. Uh, I put here, it's important to note that God was not just placing the Israelites in scary places so he could swoop in as the hero. Right? You ever had that time where you come in, you save the kid from what is not danger, but they think it is, and so you're the hero, and everything's great. Instead, he's placing them early on in the journey in a position where only he could act, but also, and this is really critical, God is going to do something for them. He's going to visibly defeat the only remaining power that Pharaoh has, and that's his military. Now, if you remember, and again, there's varying opinions, and there's validity in, 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 in them, because there's ways to, to explain it that way. I think this is Thutmose Third. This is the guy who's been under the thumb of his stepmother, slash aunt, however that works, and who is militarily amazing. Fighting is what he's good at. And so he's had his whole country annihilated, and now he's bringing what he's best at, defeating people. And he's coming out with his army. They're afraid of Egypt. They're always afraid of Egypt because they don't have this military acumen that they can come and attack and make things happen. And so God is actually bringing this fear to them where he is going to visibly defeat them in one fell swoop, thus eradicating what? The fear. They'll accuse uh, Moses of trying to kill him in the desert. They'll say they want to go back to Egypt, but they're not going to worry about Egypt killing them because God is going to annihilate their chariots that came out. It's not their whole military, but it's a host of them that move in. So we begin with this idea of building their assurance with a resolved situation, and it starts with placement by the sea. And I'm going to look at this. First, we find the movement of Israel. God brought them there. And it's the purpose of his glory over Egypt. He says that. Verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. In verses 1 through 3, it talks about moving the nation of Israel down, if you're taking this point in the Red Sea, down here and backing them up right here. Back against the body of water. And don't get confused because of the finger thickness on the map. They can't cross it. Uh, I don't buy into it being marshy land because when it says a wall of water, uh, nothing knee high is a wall to me. That's a wall and that's a wall. But if I can step over it, it's not even a fence, right? It's just a hurdle. And that's not what they call it. They call it a wall. So we're going to look at being against the body of water. Scripture makes that clear by how it words it. Um, it also wrapped up the issue with the Egyptians, right? It's going to wrap up all these problems that are going to take place. Yet you get to 10 through 18, and they feared while they were there. Let me read verses 13 and 14. And Moses said, here's what they say in 12. 
Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness? We're going to be dead. They're going to slaughter us. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. That's a big statement. They're not coming back is what he's saying. They're gone. The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. Let me put this in vernacular of today. God's going to fight for you. Be quiet. Quiet. And take care of it. Be quiet. You ever been in a family situation? Your kids are chattering, 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 and you're going to take care of the situation. You ever tell them, be quiet. I'm going to handle it. It's not your business. I got it. Leave it alone. Sit still. It's done. Not worried about this anymore. It's taken care of. And that's God telling the nation of Israel, be quiet. I'm going to take care of it. Just watch how it's done. It's a rebuke to them. And they're sitting there. And so from a purely temporal viewpoint, they had a reason to fear, right? If you are the nation of Israel, you serve these people, and you're watching the best military in the world come after you, do you have a reason to fear temporally? You better believe it. Let's be honest. We watch the, the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and there's a host of people that are afraid already, right? What do we fear? Nuclear war, World War III, they're not even attacking us. I want you to put this in perspective. Imagine Russia is at the doors of Culpeper. That's what they feel like. You can't over, you can't, there's nothing you can do. Their chariots are there. They're the best of the best. This is the elite. This is the Navy SEALs, and there's a whole platoon of them coming at you, and all you've ever done is farm and build bricks. Remember, this 400-some years, they weren't practicing sword fighting in the barn the whole time. This isn't a Hollywood movie. These are real farming people who have made bricks and served someone in hard labor, and they're facing an army. But what you notice is that there was a movement of Egypt to begin with. Five through nine is God moving Egypt to them. They pursued to the sea. Let me recount five through nine. Pharaoh overcomes his grief, his loss of his firstborn. Well, if you're a self-consumed tyrant, at some point you overcome the loss of your child. And then he regrets his decision, along with his counselors. Remember everyone, listen to Moses, let's get him out of here. Then they're all leaving, and suddenly they're like, hey, bricks don't make themselves. We let the brickmakers go. We got to get them back. These people are so self-consumed that the loss of their firstborn is something they got over in a fairly short period of time. So Pharaoh decides to give chase with the remaining thing that he has in his grip, and that's his military, which, by the way, is his number one thing. This is who he is. He is defined by his military might, especially if you're thinking Thutmose III. This is how he identified, to use vernacular of the day. How does he identify? Military leader. And look, it wasn't fabricated. This guy was good at fighting. He has expanded the empire this way. He's winning battles. He campaigns every year. He's, he's doing well. And he's also lucky enough to get killed in battle. So he's, he's doing both ends. And then here's what's fascinating. In the midst of his own rebellion, Scripture says God hardened his heart. Now remember what that word harden means. It strengthened it. And especially in this context, what you have to realize is what comes first. God tells them, I'm going to make sure that he comes after you. That's what he tells them in verse 4. To Israel's viewpoint, God says, I'm making 
Egypt come after you. When you look at it from Pharaoh's standpoint, he starts out with this desire to come, and then it says here, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And, and take it in sequence, this man wants to come, and God fortified him, strengthened him in his rebellion. In other words, God's making sure that he comes to fight. Pharaoh, in this context, and it's different throughout the book of Exodus, in this context, Pharaoh started this one. He wanted to come, and then God said, great, I'm going to strengthen you in your rebellion. I'm going to harden you. And we think hard like unresponsive, In the word is actually strengthened, like solidified him in his own rebellion. You are now in what you're going to do. That's what the Hebrew word means. I'm strengthening you. I'm going to make sure you follow through. You're not going to be no quitter, Pharaoh. You're going all the way to the sea. You're coming here. Now, Pharaoh is not in control, and I want you to realize that, because he's on God's timing to be used for God's purpose. And this is what I love. Look at 19 and 20. Never miss 19 and 20. Pharaoh comes. Pharaoh makes his own military decisions. Pharaoh attacks when Pharaoh wants to. Pharaoh makes good decisions. He is a military genius from what we know. But they were delayed at the sea. 19 and 20 says this, And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel removed and went where? Behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. What's taking place now? Who is standing between Israel and Egypt? God in a very physical way. They can't advance. In my mind, I don't think it's one pillar dancing around in front of soldiers like, ha-ha, playing a game. The essence of his cloud just made it impossible for them to see. It just covered them up. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and what to them? Darkness. What does darkness mean? You can't what? Can't see. Can you attack what you can't see? Where do you drive your chariot? I don't know. It's dark. It's not like they're like, hey, when do we get through this cloud? It's really foggy. It is an oppressive cloud of darkness. They cannot make the move. And that's what I love because God is orchestrating his passage through the sea. And by the way, both groups get to get in the ocean. One gets out, one doesn't. And I put this movement of Israel, 21 and 22. And I'm going to say this because I want you to register this. The movement of Israel through the Red Sea is 21 and 22. How many verses is that? The destruction of Egypt is 23 through 30. One. What is God emphasizing? His victory. What do we always talk about? Our accomplishments. If you look at every Bible story, it has always ends with a brief killing of all the Egyptians and a long march through the walls of water on dry land. And we emphasize it to the nth degree. And I'm not villainizing it. It's just the wrong perspective of what Scripture is pointing to because um, 21 to 20, and Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind. By the way, there's people like, oh yeah, the east wind does blow in the Red Sea, and it's really marshy, and so it could blow, and then it would dry it out, and they would walk across ankle-deep water and not get their feet wet. And the Egyptians are so afraid of water that when they get in it, the ankle-deep water makes them scared and they die. It's like my brother Anthony, he almost drowned in a puddle of water, and we always harped on him for that for a lifetime. We're like, roll over. He was 18 months, but either way. We do that with them once in a while, like, roll over, buddy. We know how you are. You just got to roll out, roll out. So he, we have fun time. We're brothers, so you know how brothers are, you know. 
for a good laugh, you'll sacrifice a brother, you know. So uh, <laughs> you got multiple ones. But either way, I want you to realize that this is no ankle-deep water that a little breeze took care of. It blew all night. God does use his creation to accomplish his purpose and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the children went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And here's what I want you to realize when people say the wind blew over and it dried a portion of the sea. Why does scripture tell us left hand and right hand? Does a uniform, does an eastern wind suddenly make a tunnel? No. The idea is it would dry up a certain portion. And so people get so confused because they never think about this. The wording of scripture, it's very clear. Right and left, wall of water, dry in the middle. A natural east wind doesn't do that. That's not normal. It's out of the normality. And it's not in marshy land. It's in a sea because there's a wall of water and a wall of water. So I want you to watch the movement of Israel. Then 23 through 31, and I won't read it all for the sake of time, which I don't have any left. Um, I want to notice a couple things. Bulk of the story is Egypt attempting to cross against God and failing. Two, the story of the crossing centers on what God does to protect and save his children. Why? And this is really critical because it represents the fulfillment of God's salvation. Egypt is unable to cross and kept at bay by the loss of all who entered to cross. What is highlighted? God's salvation. Don't miss the God part. God's salvation. He is emphasized. What do we typically fixate on? The dry walk. This is what I write. We always focus on our walk on dry land and what we have overcome in doing that. Let's be honest. And I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle what we overcome, but let's be honest. There's a wall of water here and a wall of water there, and I can just see it now. Can you imagine Israel? I overcame my fear of water and walls, and I walked through on dry land, and I made it. God's not impressed right there. Who made the dry land? God did. Who made the wall? God did. What does he talk about? The fact that he destroyed your enemy in the water afterwards. That's what's interesting. I put think a bit about how much of our faith and life experience is self-centric. How much focus is on us and how little focus is on God's deliverance and his hand in what goes on. Now, I'm going to move quickly through a chunk of 15. I'm going to save the last part of 15, and I never went to my point. Sorry, look at that. There they are. Guidance. That's really deliverance. I told Darren the wrong word. Deliverance, salvation, praise, and then the complaint. This complaint is going to tuck right in with the wilderness issue. I'll go back. It's going to be here, and we're going to see a lot of complaining in the wilderness or testing that goes on. Uh, 15, 1 through 21 is the song of Moses and Miriam praising God. I'm going to highlight verse 1 and verse 21. I'm going to read a portion. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. Not, I'm so thankful I walked through on dry ground. He has triumphed gloriously. Focus on his salvation. We talk about evangelism. What do we talk about sharing? The gospel. What are we talking about? The cross. Who was on the cross? Jesus Christ. Who works your salvation? He does. Emphasize him. Always him. That's what we see scripture constantly doing. I put here, do we stop and give significant and detailed praise to God? That's a whole chapter on them singing praise to God. And I looked at this and I know I praise him, but I'm afraid I missed the details. 
and I'm speaking for myself here, but maybe it speaks to what you all do as well. I generalize too much. Instead of seeing his very specific hand in very specific details. And I'm not talking that we get petty with it. I'm just saying, how detailed are you? When I read the Psalms, and some of them are a little bit gory, but they're very specific. Praise him for overcoming that enemy in this way, in this timing. David speaks very detailed about what God does. His praise is often, there's plenty of broad-based praise. I'm not saying it's not good to praise him generally, but here I watch and see Moses praise him specifically, and it's a long song of praise. Um, my notes say here, this will be my transition to next week. Well, it would not be a real story about humans if it didn't end in complaint. <laughs> All right, so next week we'll talk about complaining. Here's a few things I want us to remember Israel moves out of Egypt, and we're reminded that we all need God's guidance. We need his deliverance. His clear direction has been given. We need to see, follow, and trust it. Trust him as he works out his salvation and will. The, the, the Israelites had to trust God, and they didn't. Oh, you brought us here to die. No, God brought you here so that he could wipe out Egypt's army in one flood. If he wouldn't have done that with the Red Sea, what would they have feared for their whole journey to the promised land? Getting chased by the Egyptians. By the way, this king has conquered all the way up to the promised land. You think he's stopping? He's going to come back and get them. They would have feared this forever. And you know what God did? Took out the fear like that and made it where it never comes back again. Now that's an amazing God. Trust him in his work. Praise him for what he does. And then, of course, resist the temptation to find defeat in the midst of victory, which is what we're going to talk about more next week.